Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Break, the podcast bringing content to sports fans at a time when we are deprived of live action. Our guest today was the 2010 snooker champion of the world before going on to be a triple crown winner. He's known as the Thunder from Down Under and he is, of course, Neil Robertson. Neil, how are you? Good to see you. Yes, very good. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, everything's um, going well here. We're, you know, following all the guidelines and everything like we're meant to, unlike some of the people uh, you've been taking snaps of in the, in the park. <laughs> yes, we, we don't like those people. Stay at home. Save the NHS, everyone. Um, how are you finding not being able to visit a snooker club and hit a ball? Um, is this quite bizarre or is it something you do in the summer naturally anyway? Now, usually you have um, time off in the summer anyway. Um, so for me personally, it feels as though my summer's been kind of like sped up a month um, where you know we've missed the Tour Championship and the World Championship. Um, but those tournaments are being postponed, looking to play them at the end of July. But um, it just feels as though how it would do at the end of my World Championship where a lot of people think that you want to go go on holiday, go somewhere you know overseas where you know my ideal holiday is almost just staying at home actually um, because you know many times you know you go like a month basically with only spending one or two days at home. Um, so it's actually quite nice to be sort of um, grounded at home and, and spending time with kids and Miller. No, it's, it's good to hear you're coping with it quite nicely, which a lot of people are at the moment. I know a lot of people are struggling, but it's nice to hear you're safe and well at the moment. Listen, before we talk about you and, of course, how you got into snooker, which we'll do in a minute, I love the fact you're in your man cave. <laughs> and, oh, my goodness, look at all those trophies. So I can see over your left shoulder in the middle bit, you've got the, the World Championship, the Masters and the UK. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, they're just... Uh, what else? What else have we got there? I've got um, some trophies up there. Um, like from China, um, the 100 centuries in a season trophy, first player to do that. Um, I've got some sort of nerdy figurines. I've got a life-size Darth Vader there. Um, <laughs> I've got like Batman and Joker uh, from Hot Toys. got some trophies, um, uh, the frames, which World Snooker make. Um, every time you win a tournament, World Snooker give you uh, one of the frames. Um, so, yeah, I've got you know lots of things there. Um, Actually, one of them up there, um, it's like a it's like a clay sort of vase. Um, when we used to have the Wuxi Classic, uh, the winner got a um, trophy made from an ancient master clay pot maker in China. Um, they say it takes about a year to make those pots. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so every time that someone won the tournament in Wuxi, they would get um, a clay pot made like a vase, mm. um, whichever animal it was for that year. So that trophy there is it was like the year of the horse. So it's it's a really amazing 
um, and they they told us not to throw it out or just keep it in the hotel room because apparently they're worth like five thousand pounds. So uh, wow, yeah, it sits uh, sits up there very proudly. I I love the fact that they're all on show because so far every snooker player is just in their lounge. No one has, has sat in front of all their trophies, and I'd much rather they all sit in front of their trophies. I adore stuff like that. Which is your most prized? One is there, mate? Have you got in that group there the first one you ever won as a kid? Is that out on show or not? No, they're all back home in Australia. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I must have probably about fifty trophies back home. It's kind of funny when I go home and yeah, my brother sort of shows me them or something. That they're just all in the garage and loads of boxes and stuff like that. So yeah, um, yeah many great memories. Getting to send you the very first one, you can put it next to the world championship. That'd be amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. The junior, although the junior trophies in Australia are absolutely huge. They're so much bigger than what they are over here it's it's kind of crazy wow. actually yeah yeah they're huge well, well, well let me ask you then it's um i mean it's not i suppose it's not a normal thing for an australian to grow up wanting to be a snooker player so how did that come about then neil um well my brother and i we used to um my parents got divorced when we were quite young and so we used to spend the weekends with our dad and he used to take us every um saturday morning to like play pool play a bit of nine ball and stuff like that um, the snooker tables were probably a bit too big for us to kind of play when we only played like once a week. Um, so we used to prefer just to play like pool or nine ball because it was a lot easier. Um, and he'd play on like one of the other tables with his friends or he'll play, play with us. Um, so that's how it originally sort of started. And then, um, after about a year of doing that, um, the place that we went to every Saturday, um, one of the owners was selling, selling his, his half of the business. And, um, uh, my dad took the opportunity to, to buy into the, buy into the club and uh yeah then all of a sudden it was um it was free pool and snooker uh, for the next few years for us was snooker a big thing in australia then yeah snooker was very popular i think um like pop black and stuff like that was 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 really popular back home uh in the 80s um you know jimmy white alex higgins um these sort of guys you know used to go out to australia every year to play in the australian masters so the popularity of the game was was, was very very good um, Similar to over here where, you know, there's only four, four or five TV channels um, that's going to create a lot of really good exposure. And um, so um, one of the TV channels in Australia used to show a lot of snooker. Eddie Charlton was obviously, you know, a former top player of the game, you know, got to, I think, three world finals and he lost to, lost to Reardon. I think in one of them, mm. something like 33, 32, Mr. Easy Brown. I remember talking to Ray <laughs> about that, actually. I always, always wanted to know. And I talked to that's Ray amazing. about that. Yeah, Mr. Easy Brown in, in uh, Nana Wadding. Um, which was probably about um, ten minutes away from where I, where my dad's club was. Um, so uh, so yeah, that, that's how we got started. And then um, my dad used to run a junior competition every Sunday morning. He used to send out lots of leaflets to all the schools around um, in the letter boxes and stuff like that. Uh, juniors like they play for free. The tournament winner got something like five dollars can of coke and a mars bar or something right and um back then that was a great prize you know for an 11 year old kid or something like that you know and five dollars went a lot a lot longer than, than what it does nowadays what was the standard like because um i am um, of course i was desperate to become a snooker player but it was no good but i used to play at ilford snooker club and ken doherty played there and ronnie played there and the standard you know everyone was knocking in tons but what was the standard like when you were growing up in australia playing in snooker clubs um uh, my dad's club um so there were a couple of like really good amateur players, but um, probably could only help me reach a certain level. So my dad put together a A-grade pennant snooker team and he got um, two or three of the best sort of players in Victoria, which was the state I lived in, 
he got some of the best players in Melbourne to to play at the club and to play in the team. Um, he got one of them to coach me every Saturday morning. Uh, his name was Brett Rogers, and he was a very good player. Brett would um, would often make one four sevens all the time with wow with different rack cues. Never seen anything like it. This guy would pick up a random rack cue and can make back to back centuries with it. He was a wonderful player, but an absolute nutcase. He would like <laughs> be playing with his cue, and he wouldn't like the weight of it or the feel of it. And he always used to like sand his cue all the time to try and like get a better feel for it or something. And um, sometimes you'd see him, if there wasn't any sandpaper around, actually get a set of car keys and actually like use car keys to actually like file and sand the cue. <laughs> and then he'd knock in a 147 or something. It'd be absolutely ridiculous. I remember playing him once when I was 13 and um, he broke off. I missed the long read. He made 147. Then I broke off and he made 137. So it was like really, really good plays back home in Australia. Biggest problem was with back home in Australia was is that we used to hear stories of like 10 and 11 year olds making 10 centuries a day. And so, which is just obviously absolute nonsense, right? Yeah. And so, that, so for me growing up, I was thinking, oh God, I'm, I can't even make more than one century a week. There's no way I'm going to be good. Enough. So, we've already got this in our head that it's, it's impossible that we can't possibly beat people around our own age. So I think that actually held back a lot of players um, in Australia and especially overseas that you'd hear these random stories. This is before, obviously, a lot of TV exposure and YouTube and social media to actually kind of see what it's really like. I was going to ask then, how did you watch snooker? Because presumably it wasn't on on telly in Australia as much as it was over here. So um, how did you watch it? Uh, we used to get the tapes sent over of like you know, the Masters, the UKs, the Worlds. Right. Um, someone would record them and they'd send them over. So... The first match I watched was uh, Stephen Hendry against Alan McManus in the final of the Masters when Alan broke his, his record. I think Stephen had won it the previous four or five years. Yeah. And um, the the other owner of my dad's club was Scottish and he obviously loved Hendry, McManus and you know, John Higgin. So we used to get a lot of tapes with, with those with those players. And um, yes, that's how I grew up watching the games. How long after the game finished were you getting the tapes? Because it's, it's quite a distance yeah. between England and Australia. So <laughs> yeah. How long would it take? Probably back then. Probably would have been a couple of months at least. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so you're, you're, getting, you're getting a copy of the Masters like March or April time? Uh, yeah, probably something like that. Yeah, but I mean, because I was only 11 or 12, I, I didn't really know the result anyway. No, of course. You know? Of course. I mean, the internet I don't, wasn't even out yet. Yeah, so there was no way of knowing, really. It's mad. So what age were you when you sort of committed to snooker where you thought, you know what, I can actually make a living here? Uh, pro- probably when I didn't want to be in school anymore. <laughs> right. Think, Which um, been, what age would that have been then? Uh, I think when I was age of 14 or 15, I was looking for a way out of school. Um, really didn't enjoy it at all. The um, Probably the education system wasn't the best where the teachers kind of once once kids started falling behind, they kind of let them fall over, basically. It was, yeah, that, that's like a subject for for another day, I suppose. But, um, yeah, basically I, I really didn't enjoy school at all. Um, so I just used to go down to my dad's club after school, um, you know, a couple of times a week and, you know, obviously would play pretty much every day, school holidays, um, play every weekend. And, uh, yeah, it got to a point where my dad knew that I didn't want to be in school like at all, and it was actually probably causing more harm than good. So my mum would go to work, I'd, I'd get dressed up in my school uniform, and I'd just walk to my dad's club because it was only about a 10-minute walk away from, from the house. Right. And uh, and he would see me, and, and he, 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 would, he would understand. He goes, hey, son, and he would just get the balls out and let me practice. 
practice all day. So yeah, my mum wasn't too impressed. I'm sure she's fine now with it. It's panned out quite nicely for you. But but how on? I just don't see how yeah. <laughs> um, a 14 or 15 year old growing up in Australia and wants to become a snooker player and chase his dream. How from there you get on a plane and decide to come and live in England? I mean, who came with you? How did that happen? Who paid for it? Yeah, that was probably the biggest challenge is that like, okay, you want to be a professional snooker player, you leave school, knowing that you could always go back to school, although in the back of my mind, I was never going to go back. My idea was to have a full year off school and see how good I could get at snooker. And so I did that. The Oceania Snooker Championship when I was 16 was held in Melbourne. Um, by this time, my dad had, had sold the club. And um, so the Oceania Snooker Championship championship was held there and the semi-finalists finalists and the winner all got the pro ticket so it was actually four places from australia or oceana so uh, i got to the semi-finals i beat robbie Falvari in the quarterfinals five two um robbie was probably considered the best player in australia at the time he was um well apart from quinton Han, of course who's was, was currently sort of like top 32 in the world wow. at the time and robbie was like world former world billy champion uh, he had been got to semi-finals before in the world ranking events so I was only 16 when I actually qualified. And uh, so, yeah, then all of a sudden it's like, wow, you know, like, you know, quite exciting time, you know, 16-year-old turning pro. The funny thing is that I hadn't won a prof- I hadn't won an amateur tournament in Australia yet, so it was kind of out of the blue, really. Wow. Yeah, so I, I came over to England, obviously, just, you know, never experienced anything like it before. Um, Who were you coming over to England to stay with? Presumably you had family over here. Uh, just by myself. Yeah, 16-year-old just by, by himself coming over. Well, hold on, hold on. At 16, you get on a plane from Australia, you fly to England on your own, and then you live on your own in England. Uh, well, um, I have uh, – my grandmother lived over here, so she picked me up at the airport. Right. Um, she drove me down to Plymouth. Right. And myself and the, and the three other Australian snooker players, we all lived in these um, sort of like – student apartments or something it was it was really weird all the overseas players all stayed in those apartments so uh it was a season where they extended the tour to 196 players on the tour and so there was a lot of overseas players and so we're all like all grouped up together you know players from egypt south africa and like africa china thailand australia canada like everywhere you know, certainly a lot, a lot different feel to how the tour is now, where it's predominantly either UK-based players or Chinese players, apart from mm. one or two other overseas players. Um, so we're all on these apartment blocks. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a great time. It was, it was a really interesting experience. I didn't do very well. I only won, uh, only won one match. I got, I got absolutely hammered. I remember losing, my, losing the first match 5-0 to Mehmet Hasnu and then walking back through the players' lounge. I think a few of the, like, the UK-based players all sort of like, they didn't realise I was just following in behind him, but they all kind of looked at me and went, oh, that was a tough draw. Like, you know, sort of like, you know, taking the mick because um, I, I clearly wasn't good enough, nowhere near good enough to compete um, against, you know, other professionals. And so, uh, so yeah, I actually remember that for a long time and used it for motivation um, for, for later years to come. You must have thought many a time that perhaps you made the wrong decision. I think I'm right in saying you dropped off the tour, didn't you? More than once, yeah, is that right? Yeah, three times. Yeah. Three times. When I was 16, um, fell off, and then I won the Oce- I won the Oceania Championship when I was 18. Much improved player. I did quite well on the tour. I won 10 matches, and I did quite well. I lost to Steve Maguire, 5-4. Um, lost to Ian McCulloch, 10-8 in the World Qualifiers, two rounds and four, getting to the Crucible. So, like a completely different player, I improved a lot. 
So, so let me ask you then, Neil, how do you go, and we're going to cover your career throughout this, but how do you go from dropping off the tour three times, from being a young kid and everyone mm-hmm. looks at you and thinks you're an easy draw, how do you go from there, fast forward to 2010, to becoming the best player in the world? What, what happened? What was the defining moment where all of a sudden it all just clicked and it all worked? Um, yeah, so up until from 16 to 21... I felt I, I fell off the tour three times. When I was 21, pretty much all but kind of like given up, you know, falling off three times. Realistically, how many times can you keep flying, flying over from Australia to base yourself somewhere in the UK? Um, so I was in the job centre in, in Melbourne. I was in the queue. I didn't have a choice. I, I couldn't get a job or anything like that. I was just, well, here we are, just start the doll and then, you know, see where I end up. And I was in this queue and there was a lot of people arguing because they weren't going to get the doll check or Back home, you had to like apply for like 12 job interviews before you could actually get paid. One guy didn't apply for enough job interviews, so they weren't going to pay him. So he started kicking off and you know, swearing at everyone. And I was just thinking, oh, my God, like, wow, is this going to be me like every fortnight? And so I just turned around and left and then um, just had chatted with my mum and dad and that. And um, uh, the World Under-21s was coming up in about a month in New Zealand, which is only a short flight from Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And so I, I practised well for that. Went to the World Under 21s, that was in 2003. And still to this day, many people say the strongest ever field in the World Under 21. Uh, it's myself, Ding Jun Wee, Mark Allen, it was Pank Kajabani, um, Tian Peng Fei, um, one of the Poon Jang brothers. Um, many, many great players there. I beat Ding Jun Wee in the semi finals, uh, 8 6, I think it was. Uh, and then I beat Lu Song in the final, who went on, I think Lu Song got to provisionally 30 odd in the world at one stage as well. So, yeah, when I won that, um, I actually got an overseas wildcard pick, which was five, out of five overseas players to, to qualify for the tour. Um, I got one, Ding got one, and a few other Chinese players got one as well. Again. So then I've qualified for the tour. This is it. This is my last chance, right? Like, if I really, really want to make it. Steve Misford won the World Amateur the year before and had also qualified for the tour the same season. Mm. Joel Younger, a friend of mine, uh, was already on the season doing pretty well. And so the three of us decided to um, that we'd all rent a house together in the UK. And um, Phil Mumford, the guy who was, who was managing the snooker club in Cambridge, said that, oh, um, uh, Joe Perry's actually moving his table uh, into the club. And so um, we knew Phil from when he lived in Australia for a few years playing in tournaments and he moved back to the UK. So it's all kind of like all happened together. Like it was incredible amount of luck for this to happen that, two players I admired greatly in Australia um, and grew up with, all sort of keen as well. Joe Perry moving to the same club. So I had those guys to be with. So I wasn't homesick because the previous couple of times I tried living in the UK, I got really desperately homesick, you know, incredibly bored and just absolutely hated um, living in Leicester. I was I was living in Leicester, absolutely hated it. Yeah. But moving to Cambridge is a completely different place. It's like a different country altogether. So myself, Steve Mr. Joel Younger, all living in the house right next to the club. Joe Perry's coming in every day, practicing. So we're all practicing with Joe, practicing with each other. And that's the kind of like base you really need of um, a group of players that are all really hungry to try and do well. And Joe would slaughter us every day in practice. Like he was absolutely unbelievable in practice. Um, you know, he was top 16 player at the time as well. So that was a huge turning point that year was when I got that last chance. And then Joe, you know, moving to the, to the same club that we were practicing at as well. And of course, all that um, ended up meaning you became world champion in 2010. That must have been incredibly emotional for you and also your family who flew over for the final. 
Um, just explain, if you can, put into words what those 17 days were like for you, Neil. Yeah, I mean, I was um, one of the favourites going in. I'd won the Grand Prix earlier that season. Um, uh, that season, we only had six ranking events. Um, there was a lot of politics going on in the sport, like whether or not Barry Hearn was actually going to take over. And, you know, so there's a huge amount of pressure for all the players going in because, you know, we all thought potentially that this could be the last kind of big world championship. You know, we, we the, the prize money could be completely taken out of the sport. We, we really didn't know what was going on. So, um Massive amount of pressure on all the players, um, like there is every year, but this year probably more so than any other. And uh, yeah, going in felt very good. Um, uh, beat Fergal O'Brien, I think, 10 6 the first round. The second round was obviously a, a massive talking point uh, in the tournament when I was 6 0 down to Martin Gould, who was just playing absolutely ridiculous snooker. Um, nothing to lose, the crowd loving it. He's coming out to this full on sort of like heavy metal rock music coming out of the walk on the crowd are all cheering and they want to see an Aussie get beat by an underdog for sure. So yeah, he's six two up and then he's eleven five up. Yeah. I was staying in an apartment with a friend of mine, Joff, and uh, also Matt Sell, who used to come up uh, quite a lot back then. This was kinda of like before he was he was on tour. The person who owned the the apartments um asked if I wanted to renew for another week. I said, No, I don't bother, like I'm eleven five down, I'm just probably gonna get beat. <laughs> Something very interesting happened, though, when we were watching um, John Higgins was playing Steve Davis in the last 16 and the winner of myself and Martin Gould were going to play the winner of that match. Steve Davis was playing amazingly. Well, I think Steve probably thought it was his last chance to maybe get to the semifinals or something like that, that one-table situation. Mm. And I thought there was a glimmer of hope for me if Steve Davis could beat John Higgins, where Martin Gould is all of a sudden, he's 11-5 up against me, and the prospect of playing Steve Davis is obviously... You know, Steve's obviously not the player he was in the in the 80s and 90s compared to playing John Higgins. So Martin probably would have been thinking he'll never get a chance like that again to make the semifinals himself. And so I, I try to sort of draw confidence from that. And um, and we watched Steve Davis win, and that actually gave me a bit of a boost psychologically. I thought, well, if I can put Martin under pressure first couple of frames in the night session, not eleven five down, um, he might start to uh, twitch up a bit. And um, so at eleven five, I came out. Um, kind of coming out as if I was 11-5 up, body language very good, very positive and won the first couple of frames quite easily. Uh, I noticed all of a sudden he started missing the balls that were just all going in from nowhere before. I turned the match around and then, you know, eventually won 13-12. And then, you know, from that point on, I felt, well, if I can get through that, I can get through anything mm-hmm. for the rest of the tournament. And, um, yeah, won, won the tournament. Um, I think I beat Steve 13-4, 13-5, something like that. I beat... Um, Ali Carter in the semis, who was world number two or three at the time, I think 17, 12, 17, 13. Uh, and then Graham in the final, Graham Dutton in the final, who was playing in his third final in five years, 18, 13. Yeah. Um, let me ask, um, we spoke to um, to Sean Murphy on one of these, and he said that becoming a triple crown winner was probably a better achievement for him than when he became world champion. And he put that down to the fact that when he became world champion, he did it very young and perhaps didn't appreciate and understand exactly what it meant, but he did when he had all three. When you look back at everything you've achieved, what are you most proud about? Is it winning one of those titles or the fact you won all three? Yeah, I'd say winning all three for sure because not many players have done that. There's only, well, I mean, I think, well, Judd did obviously winning the world, so I think there's maybe 10 or 11 who have done it. But I think at the stage that I had done it, I think I was maybe only the seventh or eighth player to do it. Um, I think Selby, Sean and Judd have since gone on to to join me in the group. so, yeah, I'd say definitely becoming like a, a triple crown winner for sure. 
And I suppose um, another great achievement, you're the only player ever, which is incredible even just saying it, to make a 147 in the final of a Triple Crown event. That was against Liang Wenbo in the UK Championships. I mean, that must mean so much to you, the fact that you're the only one ever to have done it. Yeah, that's amazing, actually. When um, I didn't realise it at the time when I'd done it, but then you know, I heard about it in the press conference afterwards that I was the only one to do it. I thought that maybe Ronnie may have done it in the UK or something, but for a Masters, but... Um, yeah, no one had ever ever done it before. So that was um, that's definitely one of the greatest feelings ever. Making one four seven the final of the UK, um, the crowd and everything—it was just absolutely amazing. And it topped off a, a couple of great weeks for me because I won the champion of champions just a couple of weeks before, and then winning the UK one four seven in the final. Um, uh, John Terry invited me to Stanford Bridge to parade the trophy around at halftime on the ground, and you know meet, meet all the boys and stuff backstage, you know, in the dressing rooms and stuff like that. And, yeah, that, that was awesome as well. Uh, I'd say another great milestone as well. Um, you became the first and so far the only, although if the season carried on, we don't know if Judd would have done it, but the only player to make 100 tonnes in a season as well. Yeah, yeah, that was um, that was an incredible achievement, especially at the time. Certainly not the amount of sort of like big tournaments that we've got now. Uh, yeah, and I think the previous record was something like 61 and, and I got 103, so I betted mm. it by 42, which was kind of like crazy, really. I remember at the start of the season just getting on this crazy run and then um, yeah, I just ma- managed to sort of like keep it going. I think Judd, if we continued in the season, he definitely would have beat the record for sure. Mm. Um, and I think he'll definitely do it when you know the season sort of resumes, hopefully, sort of around the end of July, hoping to play the Tour Championships and, and the World Championships, hopefully at the end of July sometime. So, um, and that would be very deserving. He, he's had an unbelievable season. Neil, before the break, we're talking about, of course, the highs in your career when you won the Triple Crown UK Masters and World Championship. But there have been um, quite a lot of of lows as well. And you're not afraid. You don't shy away of talking about um, issues off the table. Um, You've talked about, for argument's sake, you've been very vocal about your video game addiction. You've talked about um, the the problems that your fiancé has had with depression. Um, Not a lot of people feel as though they can open up and, and tell other people about problems they've got going on in their life, especially if they're in the public eye like yourself, but it's something you're happy to do. Yeah, I am. Um, I think that when you're a known person, you know, in the public eye, like a sportsman, for example, I think that, um, you know, you you can use that as a positive to help other people who are maybe afraid to come out and actually talk about things. I think that um, what Tyson Fury did a year or so ago when he did that documentary talking about uh, his struggles with mental health, with um, anxiety and depression, Watching that documentary, I felt as though I was watching Miller talk. He was talking about the exact same thing, more or less, that um, that he went through. She wasn't like substance abuse, abusing with um, with, with drugs, but um, you know, um, with anxiety. Um, one of the the big things people do is, is you know is drink alcohol and stuff like that to help kind of like settle the anxiety down, which is what Miller was doing. Um, and that was very tough to uh, me personally to try and juggle that as well as being one of the best snooker players in the world and for a few years well for for about two years you know i was doing it without really talking about it or anything like that and um you know we have some sort of very mixed results on the table and you know people not really wondering why and obviously it wasn't myself struggling with those issues um but when you're trying to support someone through them in some ways it can probably be worse because you feel helpless in that situation mm. Um, and it took about it took about two or three years to actually work out what was going on. Um, what is anxiety? First of all, actually 
learning that she had anxiety um, and then what is it and what can you do to treat it so it was um yeah so we went through some really really tough times um especially when when i'm i'm away a lot of the time playing in tournaments um went through a period of a couple of years where i was only really practicing about 45 minutes a day that that was all i could kind of manage before kind of making sure i can come home and just like help her through the day and stuff like that and uh yeah so it was it was really tough um on the family on alexander as well and um yeah so started looking into things like um uh, rehab centers and, and places like that i always thought of rehab centers as places where nutcases go or, or heavy drug addicts that are you know rock stars or whatever and all this sort of mm. stuff but um when you kind of really learn what, what goes on um they're absolutely amazing people that that are in there um many of them are former addicts themselves with maybe alcohol abuse or drug abuse and so they've experienced and know what it's all like and um so miller went to rehab for a few weeks and um learned a lot of things to help deal with anxiety and depression um first thing obviously is to come off the alcohol just uh, the absolute fuel of all fuel for for mental illnesses alcohol or drugs for sure um alcohol probably worse because that's something that you can just go and buy behind the counter at a shop um so yeah so, you know you spend a month coming off the alcohol you learn to deal with the anxiety and then you know the the depression kind of goes away once you've been um, off the alcohol for long enough and then you learn to deal with the anxiety. The anxiety doesn't get as bad. You continue on going to meetings and stuff, which is just mega important to go to meetings. And yeah, and, and now she is a, it's just a completely different person, completely different person. And, um, you know, I couldn't be proud enough of her for, for everything she's been able to do, which then gave me the go ahead to actually talk about things publicly. And the response that I've got through people on social media has been absolutely amazing. The amount of people who have been able to help. I was going to ask you actually, from everyone that's gone through that journey, everyone tells me that as soon as they talk about it openly, it feels like a weight has been lifted off their shoulders. But it's very difficult to have the confidence and um, to be as, as as brave as you need to be to start talking about it openly. But as soon as you did that, were you stunned as to just how long you held it in for? And did you feel instantly better by talking about it? Yeah, I mean, I was very careful because obviously it was... Um uh it was it was kind of like miller's problem and you know she's not really in the public eye or anything like that but i felt as though it was a really good opportunity because at the time nobody was really talking about it although there were a few people starting to talk about mental health so when i started talking about it all of a sudden the, the amount of people that all of a sudden say yeah I, I really struggle with that too even personal friends of mine back home in australia mm-hmm. um that didn't open up and talk about it, all of a sudden start opening up to me about it um yeah i think um we've seen over the last couple of years a lot more is done actually to help people that are struggling with mental health. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been incredible really. And, they, and when I started talking about it, it felt like, like at the time it felt like I had the world on my shoulders, that much weight was on me. And then as soon as I started talking about it publicly, it all came off. I was like, oh, oh it was just the biggest relief ever. What about you? Because you did have a video game addiction, didn't you? You were spending far too much time playing video games and not and not practicing enough. Yeah. I mean, how bad did that get for you, Neil? Yeah, but I mean, that, it's sort of like related together because um, that was my, you know, I had to spend a lot more time at home than what I would have liked. And so that was kind of like my escape with dealing with things as well. You know, it wasn't, it's not always easy when you're there watching someone struggle so much. And um, so that was kind of like my escape to just, you know, to, to get away from things. And um, some of the games are kind of like harmless, but, you know, it got to the point where I was playing way too much. Um, how much? And, how much were you playing? 
Oh, like FIFA, for example, that was the one. That was the killer. Because I'm so competitive, I was kind of like getting my competitive drug out of FIFA. Right. And so I'll drop my son off at school and then come back and just be playing FIFA all day until it's time to pick him up. And really, I should have gone to the club. But I could, I could have played that game. Like, even when I've had, like, sort of times when I had, like, days off, uh, I could play it like twelve hours straight. Easy. My absolutely, like easily. You play it now. Easily. Do you, are you not allowed to touch it now? Or no, you don't go near it. No, I don't play any kind of ultra competitive games. I can't, I just can't touch full stop yeah. because um, I I just get too drawn into them. You know, I put off more important things that I should be doing. Yeah. And so um, there are some games I can play quite harmlessly. They're just good fun. You know, just like any kind of normal game. But it's the games that really suck you in. Um, from the competitive point of view, which are very dangerous to play. Well, listen, um, after, of course, you opened up, things started improving on the table for you. Mm. And even when we look at this season, you had a strange old start. You missed a flight in Latvia. You went to the wrong Barnsley and you played Ronnie in Shanghai. <laughs> you miscued and your tip come off. It was just, Although we'll talk about the rest of the season in a minute, which turned out great. It was a strange old start, wasn't it, for you? Yeah, well, it was a very, a very strange start indeed. Um, I was defending the... Um, the tournament in Latvia. Um, and uh, I think there was like 10 of us, including like Kyron Wilson, Robert Milkins, we're all on the plane, we're all, on the, we're all about to take off. And then all of a sudden, um, we get a message from the captain saying that a private jet has landed and the, the tire burst. And so it was all over, all the debris was all, all over the runway. So they had to like get, get the team out to clean it up. That took a couple of hours. And then all of a sudden, we're about to go off again. And then the, the really bad storms hit around, like, um, around southeast, southeast London, I think, like June, July. Um, and then we're stuck there for another couple of hours and then everyone gets off at the airport in Luton. And then, uh, then yeah, everyone's stranded. No flights going out of London anywhere. There's no chance of getting a flight the next day. So, um, yeah, my defence went <laughs> without any defence. <laughs> yeah. And, and the Barnsley one, I know you've spoken about it so many times, but just in case people are unaware of how you got the wrong Barnsley, what happened? Um, I put Barnsley into my sat-nav, uh, not knowing that there was actually more than one Barnsley in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is, is that it was the, pretty much the exact same mileage from Cambridge. So, you know, it's not as if it went, oh, it's 250 miles away or, or 20 miles away. Yeah. It was like 120 yeah. odd miles away, which is what the Barnsley in Yorkshire is for me. And so I'm driving and driving along and thinking, oh, this looks a bit strange, you know, because the A14 was going through a lot of changes. Right. You know, we're going off different exits and stuff to get back on because um, all the roadworks and everything. <laughs> and so I didn't really think anything was too strange. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, I'm driving and I'm see, seeing like signs for Wolverhampton. I was like, what? Wolverhampton? I thought that's where Martin Clark is. Martin Clark's one of the tournament directors, one of the tournament organisers. And uh, I thought, yeah, that can't be right. And so then I pulled over and then, I went on to Google and I typed in Barnsley Metrodome, which was the um, the qualifying venue. Yeah. And I just put it in on my phone and it was like 98 miles away. And I was, I was playing my match in like 45 minutes. So, oh, <laughs> so I wow. called up Martin Clark and I said, oh, mate, I'm in, uh, I'm near where, where you live. I said, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I, there's no way I can get there in time. And he's like, oh, mate, yeah, no, you can't. So then, yeah, that was that. I drove home. Oh. And, uh, I got through the door and Miller kind of panicked because she wasn't expecting someone to come home. <laughs> she seen me and I explained what happened and uh, yeah, that was that. It's a horrible feeling when you're driving and you know you're going in the wrong direction. You just start sweating. I've had it many times. It's vile, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's the worst. There's nothing you can do. But you ended up having a, a great season. Um, you played in one of the... Listen, I've been watching snooker since the early 80s 
And I'll, I'll say it, you played in one of the best finals I've ever seen, Champion Champions against Judd, that went the distance, 10-9, you were the winner. I mean, wow, that was brilliant to watch. What was it like to be a part of? Oh, definitely the best match I've ever been a part of, for sure. Judd would probably say the same had he been on the on the winning side of things as well. I think um, he probably looks back on it as a fantastic match. It was, um, you know, it was 10-9. It was eight centuries made in the final. I made five. He had three in a row against me. Um, that's normally enough to kind of put a ridiculous amount of pressure on your opponent at any stage. And um, But I was able to sort of like go with it. We went toe-to-toe all the way through the final. And probably the... The most amazing thing was is that up to eight all already an incredible standard. He pinched a frame on, off me to go nine eight up, and then he's on fifty odd in the next frame. And now I need a snooker with five reds left, and I've potted the five reds, five five blacks. Um, I've got the snooker. I've ended up winning on a respot to make it nine each. And then I've broke off. He's gone for like a long red in the decider, and uh, he's missed it. And now I've made one three seven in the decider to top it off. And Mm. just an amazing end to, to a wonderful final and um, yeah a match that I'll always look back on for the for the rest of my career and um, with immense amount of proudness for sure and part of a great season you won the World Open you won the European Masters beat you long without even dropping a frame I mean proving you're hitting the ball probably as well as you've ever hit it I imagine yeah absolutely yeah the, the past 18 months um, I've won six major tournaments and then um, you know usually during that period that's enough to be probably the most dominant player in the sport but you know, Judd's, uh, Judd's won, I think he's won 10 out of 11 finals. Uh, I've won six out of 10 finals. So I've got to 10 finals, he got to 11. But obviously his conversion rate has been absolutely amazing. The only final he's lost was to me in, in 11 mm. finals. And um, But uh, yeah, very happy with how I've been going. Um, this season, I was really looking forward to the Tour of Champs and World Championship. But um, obviously they've been quite fine. Did you, did you fancy the World Championships more than you have done for a long time because of your form coming into it? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, this year I, I thought it was going to take something really, really special to beat me, um, especially the form I was in coming in the latter half of the season. Um, yeah, you know, um, obviously a lot of brilliant players in it, um, but I, I felt as though this year was was going to be, you know, a really good, really good year for me. Um, Judd and I were in opposite halves as well, so that's kind of created quite a good um, a good sort of like story as well that the two of us could get to the final but um, yeah I guess we'll have to wait and see hopefully we can play the world championships although playing a world championship at the end of July is kind of like everyone starting starting fresh so there's no one in good form or anything like that it's going to be very interesting to, mm. to actually see what happens so so what are the long-term goals for you then you're on 18 titles at the moment how many when, when you retire if we had a conversation the day you retired how many would you like to say you've won um, I mean, major tournaments, when you look at Masters, Champion, Champions, they're not actually technically ranking events, but they're huge events and, and more prestigious than probably over 90% of the, the ranking events on the tour. Yeah, sure. Um, but ranking event wins, I, I'd love to, you know, I think when I won the World Championship, I think that was my sixth ranking event. Uh, and I, I, my goal was to get to 10. And then when I got to 10, my friend of mine said, oh, you've got to try and push for 20 now, you know, because that's what I think Mark Williams was on. So, yeah, so I'm going for 20 and then hopefully I get to 20 and then can reassess the situation and, and push on for more. And maybe a couple more world titles as well, UKs and That Masters. would be nice, yeah, because this is the 10th year, of course, that, you know, the 10th year anniversary from, from when I won it. And uh, it's kind of crazy that I haven't been mm. able to get to a final since. Um, you know, I've lost to Higgins, lost to Ronnie a couple of times. Um, Lost a couple of matches where I felt they were the final. Um, many, many other sort of experts feel that a couple of quarterfinals I lost were 
realistically probably the final in itself. Um, but uh, yeah, plenty of time yet, really putting the work in. And uh, yeah, we'll see. Right, now listen, before I let you go, I've got 10 quick fire questions for you. You can answer as quickly or you can elaborate as much as you want. Okay, so question number one, who's the best player you ever played against? Best player, Ronnie Sullivan. Uh, scariest player, Stephen Hendry. Uh, a player that you wish you could have played, but you never got round to doing so. Wow. Um, Alex Diggins. The best match, you might have answered this already, best match you've ever played in. And I'll allow you to use an amateur game, maybe one we don't know about. Uh, best match I ever played in, <clears throat> oh, it has to be the final, the champion champions against uh, Judd. I thought it would be that. Um, an interesting one coming up because everyone's given me different answers. Um, Best venue for snooker in terms of atmosphere? In terms of atmosphere, it would have been a couple of years ago in the final of the Hong Kong Masters where I played Ronnie Sullivan in front of 3,000 people. Oh, wow. I've never heard anything like it in my life. Well, Every shot was applauded by all of them. More so than Germany and the conference centre? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But your best ever performance, again, this might be champion of champions, I don't know. Uh, probably when I, um, I was playing a tournament in Germany, um, a year or two a tournament, and I made four consecutive centuries in a row, uh, and my opponent didn't score a point, and I won 4 nil. Wow, that's nice. That's nice. A couple of answers, actually, from various players have been similar to that. It's all about <laughs> break building, um, knocking in breaks and not missing balls. I thought it would have been sort of when you won a UK or a Masters or a World, but... I get it. How many cues have you had, Neil, in your career from when you were a kid? Uh, five. Uh, first one was a silver medal barracuda. Um, the second was like two different cues, actually. One half, the bottom half was a Walter Lindrum uh, classic cue or something. And the top half was a cue, a cue maker, I don't know. Um, that actually broke. Then I used a, a rat cue from my dad's club for a couple of years, made my first century tournament with that, 110 break. Then it got stolen in my dad's car. Then my dad gave me his cue, which was a John Paris classic cue, and I had that for, I had that for 20 years. Uh, wow. So I just recently got my, my one-piece cue of John Paris. Uh, John Paris, I think it's an ultimate. And, and apart from the one, of course, that got stolen, how many of those have you still got? None of them. I just got the John Paris Classic cue. Uh, who's the toughest ever opponent you've come up against? Mm. John Higgins. If you could change one thing in snooker, what would it be? Yeah, one, one thing I would like to see change in the game is referees uh, getting a bit more of a license to uh, give players warnings for um, sort of unsporting like behaviour, I suppose. On the back tables, the outside tables. You guys, you guys don't see it when you watch it on TV, but... Um, some of the lower-ranked lower guys, they, they try to get away with an awful lot. Um, your biggest regret in snooker to date is what? In the quarterfinal of the World Championships in 2006 against Graham Dots, um, we're on the yellow with 12 all in the quarters. Um, he's tried to hit the yellow and he's missed it. He wasn't snookered or anything, but he's tried to play a thin clip on the yellow. And I forgot where the white actually was when he played the shot. So I was actually worried that if... I put him back from the foul and a miss, but he was actually going to play a really good safety shot. And so instead, I tried to play the shot myself. I double kissed the yellow, and then he potted yellow, green, brown, and I needed a snooker. Wow. You forgot where the white was. Well, I, I didn't remember the exact spot. So where I was pretending to play the shot from, 
with my hand. Oh, I see. Okay. It wasn't there. And I was thinking, geez, if I put him back, he's going to play a really good shot. So that's why I chose to play it myself and stuff it up. Last question. If you could achieve just one more thing in snooker, what would it be? One more thing. I think another world championship. What an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for, for your time. I've really, really enjoyed our chat. It's been great. Yeah, no problem, bud. Great fun as always. Thanks, man. You take care and we'll see you very soon. Hopefully sooner rather than later. All right. Cheers, bud. That's all we've got time for in today's podcast. Make sure you check out iTunes. Uh, they're available as a podcast download or keep watching Eurosport. There's loads more. In the meantime, thanks again to the Thunder from Down Under, Neil Robertson, and for myself and Neil. Bye-bye for now. Take care. <laughs>